Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Christ Church. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm delighted to be back with you. Last week, I was off at a conference, and uh, it is good to be home, and it is particularly a pleasure for me to get to preach the word to you this morning. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. The text is printed there for you in the bulletin. And this morning, we are continuing our series through 1 Samuel. And though we didn't specifically plan it this way, this text gives us a very fitting, and in fact, I think a perfectly fitting passage for this, our first week of Advent. And so, as Nate mentioned earlier, this is the first week of Advent, and during the season of Advent, we anticipate and we celebrate the coming of our Lord, the King Jesus. And in this season, when we do that, we focus on the beauty and the mystery of the incarnation, how the eternal God, who is righteous beyond all measure, could take on our flesh and live and dwell among us. So as we spend this time in reflection and anticipation, we do it as those who are in still marked by the darkness of the world around us. And it is there in the darkness and the brokenness of our world that our King Jesus meets us with his light, meets us with his hope, his joy, and his love and his peace. And we find that Jesus is the light in darkness And he is our joy and sorrow, and he is our love and our sadness. And so in our text today, we find a story in the history of God's people that speaks directly to this longing, this mixture of us in a world marred by sin, longing for our coming Savior. And so let's look now to 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites, was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So they ran and they took him from there. And when they stood him among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel 
told the people the rights and the duties of kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? God and Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that you would meet us. We who are anxious over many things in our lives, look forward to your coming. We who are blessed in so many ways long for the complete joy of your kingdom. We whose hearts are heavy seek the joy of your presence. So meet us, Holy Spirit, with your presence. Enlighten our eyes that we, your people, walking in darkness, would see your light. We ask in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this passage continues through our series on 1 Samuel. And this morning, we come to what you can call the coronation of King Saul, the coronation of Israel's first true king. And interestingly, this is really the second part of Saul's coronation. If you were here last week, you heard earlier in chapter 10 where Samuel anoints Saul's head with oil. And there he tells him that Saul would reign over the people of the Lord and save them from the hands of their enemies. So that was a bit of a private ceremony where Saul learned that he would be king. And today we see the public ceremony. And in fact, we see a public covenant that God is making with Saul and with his people. And any time we see a covenant in Scripture, we take special notice of what's going on. Because as you may or may not know, covenant is one of the most important concepts in the Bible. It's so important that before we get to our main points of our passage today, I'm going to take a little bit of a detour discussing the covenant as it appears in this passage. So bear with me for about five minutes or so, because I think this is helpful for us in understanding what is happening in our text And so our God, as he is in this text, we find that our God is a covenant-making God. And I don't think it's overstating things to say that God only relates to us, his children, through covenant. Consider from the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2, there is a covenant that he is making with creation and with Adam and Eve, promising that he would be their God and their king and that they would be faithful, be fruitful and multiply and thus be vice regents in the creation God is giving them. And the very Bible itself is a covenant document defining and describing the relationship that God has with his people. And that's why we call our Bible the Old and the New Testaments. Testament is another word for covenant. The old and the new covenants together are our scripture. 
And so covenant, at its basic understanding, is an agreement where two different parties make binding promises to one another. And in the Bible, covenants often have a mixture of certain components. There's always two different parties. And you typically have witnesses to the the covenant. There are people there who are witnessing the agreement made, whether that's God himself or whether that's the document that they write down. And you often have an introduction to the covenant that describes the events that lead up to why they're making that binding promise to each other. And there's stipulations to the agreement. If you do these certain things, this is what's going to happen. But if you do these things over here, these other things are going to happen. And as we look at our passage today, we see all of these forms in 1 Samuel 10. So first, notice in verse 17 that there's a gathering of witnesses, a gathering of the parties that are meeting together, where Samuel calls the people to mitzvah. And this is a formal assembly, and even the location is important here. Mitzvah is a place where previous biblical covenants have been made. First, there is one in In Genesis, where Jacob, before he was called to Israel, he made a a covenant with his father-in-law there, establishing himself with his wives as a family. And later, at the end of the book of Judges, and more pertinent to our text today, all of Israel, all the tribes of, of Israel gathered at Mizpah to make a covenant together about a civil war that was brewing. And I'll mention this again later, but in that civil war, That civil war was a response to the failure of the tribe of Benjamin. And so we've mentioned a few weeks ago here in uh, our series that at the end of the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin commits one of the most atrocious acts of violence in Scripture against an Israeli, Israeli woman. And so the rest of Israel gathers together at Mitzvah to covenant together to decide what they're going to do about Benjamin. And so here, when they gather at Mitzpah and they gather the witness, we see that this is the beginnings of a covenant. And then in verses 18 and 19, we see what you can call the historical prologue or the events leading up to this agreement. And there, Samuel says in verse 18, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of all the kingdoms who were oppressing you. Many of you recognize that this language itself is covenant language. This is similar language. It's nearly identical to the preface of our Ten Commandments, both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, when God is giving Israel the law, establishing them as a nation, and setting before them, this is the law that you will follow. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And in this way, the agreement being made here in 1 Samuel appears to be a continuation of God's care for Israel and his covenantal commitment to them as his beloved children. Then later, in verse 25 of our passage, we find a short description of the agreement that's being made here what you can call the covenant stipulations. It's summarized in short, but notice in verse 25, Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. Samuel is detailing the agreement of the covenant. He's laying out all that the king will do for the people and all that the people will do in response. 
And again, we've mentioned this before, that the duties Samuel describes come from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, where God says, when the king sits on his throne and on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book the copy of this law. And he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this laws and the statutes and doing them. And so we see Saul's coronation is a covenant agreement between God and his people. And as we examine this particular covenant, this particular agreement between God and Saul and Israel, we learn three main truths from this passage. First, we see that we are an unfaithful people. And because we are an unfaithful people, second, we see that we seek out unfaithful kings. So we are an unfaithful people. We seek out unfaithful kings. And third and finally, we will only be saved by our faithful King Jesus. And so those are our three points that we're going to discuss this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 10. That we are an unfaithful people, that we seek out unfaithful kings, and that we will only be saved by our faithful King Jesus. So let's look at our passage and see first how we are an unfaithful people. Notice that this text, verses 17 through 27, begin and end with the failure of the people of Israel. Look at God's very first words, not just to Israel, but concerning Israel in verses 18 and 19. We've already mentioned that God begins by reminding Israel who God is. He is the one who saved them from the hand of all their enemies, from the hand of all who were oppressing them. But then in verse 19, God speaks directly to Israel and says of them, but today you have rejected your God. So the coronation then, this agreement, is not a result of Israel's faithfulness. In fact, time and again, the book of 1 Samuel reminds us that Saul is in many ways a consolation for the people of Israel. The Israelites once again have turned away from trusting their God as king and they are looking for a lesser savior. So God is clear in verse 19. The covenant he is making with them is a result of their rejection of God. And this is just like Adam and Eve's sin in the garden when they rejected God's words for the words of the serpent. And it's just like Israel after the crossing of the Red Sea when the Lord miraculously saves them and the first thing that they do is immediately grumble against God and question his provision. And it's just like the times when you and I choose our sinful desires over God's law. Here too, the nation of Israel is rejecting their true king. They are showing themselves to be an unfaithful people. And so we don't miss the point. Notice also how our passage ends. It begins with God saying, you have rejected me, your God. And then in verse 27 through 25, or excuse me, 25 through 27, Samuel sends all the people home. And in verse 26, Saul goes home to Gibeah, and there were some We're told that there's a a mixed reaction here. There were some who go with him who were men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But notice the last bit where there are other worthless men who question Saul's kingship. 
they immediately grumble against him, saying, how can this man save us? Just, just so you know, this is no small offense. We'll see in the very next chapter, chapter 11, after Saul delivers Israel from the Ammonites, Israel calls for these men who question Saul, calls for them to be put to death. And so we have a rejection of Saul here that is equivalent to treason against the monarchy and another sign of the unfaithfulness of the people. And in that way, our passage begins and ends with reminders that our community, even as the children of God, our community is contaminated with our own unfaithfulness. As we consider this and contemplate this, in one level, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that we find that God's people are marked by unfaithfulness because this is the very recurring story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament is that God is faithful to his people, that they reject him, and that yet he still remains faithful. As I mentioned, this is the story of Adam and Eve. They rejected God in the garden, and he graciously provided for them. It's the story of Abraham, who's given all of the promises of God, and the first act that he does is go down into Egypt and lie to Pharaoh and try to hide from the consequences of Sarah being his uh, wife. It's Jacob's story, it's Moses' story, and time and again, it's Israel's story. Repeatedly in Scripture, God's children turn away from him, and yet God remains faithful. And so if we're honest with ourselves, and we begin to acknowledge that this is Israel's story, it's an easy application for us to also acknowledge that this is our story too. Scripture is clear, not just through narratives, not just through giving us examples. Scripture is poignantly clear when it speaks directly to us. As we've already heard today from Isaiah 64, that we are all unclean. That even our most righteous deeds are to God as a polluted garment. Or in Psalm 14, that tells us that there is no one who is righteous. Psalm 53 tells us that everyone has turned away from God. Romans 3, Paul tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus says the same as he says that, reminds us that there is no one who is good. And so as we read about God making a covenant with unfaithful Israel, we are reminded that we too are marred by our own unfaithfulness. And so let me make two quick observations about the unfaithfulness that we are marked by that are here in the text. And one I've already alluded to is that our unfaithfulness in this way is universal. That is, there is no one who is left unstained by unfaithfulness. And this is what we sometimes call in our faith tradition total depravity. And it is why we begin, if you become a member of our church, it's why we begin the vows the way that we do. And our first question is, you stand up here and become a member of our church. Our first question to you is, do you believe that you are a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save his sovereign mercy? And this is also why we structure our liturgy the way that we do. Why already to this point, we have publicly and out loud confessed that we are unfaithful and that we need the grace of Jesus Christ. Our unfaithfulness is universal. And even though it is universal, the second observation, it's also just as important to note, 
that our unfaithfulness doesn't define all of who we are. And so our second observation is that though unfaithfulness is universal, it's not absolute. You see that here in our story. God clearly states that Israel rejects God. And yet, as we've already seen at the end of our passage, we see a mixed message. And we see some whose hearts are touched by God. And these men are called men of valor, one of the highest compliments the Old Testament gives someone. And so in our understanding of the universality of sin, we still allow to see the true goodness in people. Yes, Israel rejected God, but there is still goodness in Israel. Some are still worthy of praise. And so in this way, our understanding of unfaithfulness is nuanced. As one author put it, the modifier total in total depravity denotes that sin affects every facet of our nature. It does not mean that sinners are as bad as they possibly can be. Or that any one person is as bad as he possibly can be. Rather, it means that no part of our person is uncorrupted. Or in the words of another theologian, total depravity means the entire absence of holiness, not the highest intensity of sin. And this is why you and I can say together that our church, even Christ church, but the church of Jesus Christ is made up of people who are unfaithful. And yet at the exact same time, the body of Christ is the most beautiful thing on the planet. And we can hold those two truths in tension together. And in fact, this is the very paradox of Advent. That our world lay in darkness and our lives are marred by the unfaithfulness of ourselves and the unfaithfulness of others. And yet there is goodness and joy and hope and peace and light in that darkness. And so here in our passage, the first truth that we meet in this covenant ceremony, in the coronation of Saul, is that we are an unfaithful people. And because we are an unfaithful people, we see that we also seek out unfaithful kings, which is our second point today, that we seek out unfaithful kings. Now, just like our understanding of our own unfaithfulness, the story of Saul's kingship isn't just black and white. Saul is not wholly bad or wholly good. Rather, he's a mixture of both. And if you were here for the last time I preached, you might remember how I I described that's how the very book of 1 Samuel works. The book of 1 Samuel feels like a roller coaster ride of up and down, going from great to terrible, one after the other. And it's because Samuel is reconciling the human experience of good and bad together. And so as we look at Saul in this passage, though he is not as bad as he could be, he is depicted here as an unfaithful king. As one author observes, with the exception of the events in chapter 11, Saul will be characterized by fear, reluctance, incompetence, and impetuousness. And I would add, at the end of that, we find at the end of Saul's tenure, unfaithfulness. And we see those very traits in our text today. Perhaps the clearest sign of Saul's picture of unfaithfulness is his reaction to being chosen as Israel's king. And if you remember, Saul was already told that he would be king twice 
in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, he was even anointed by Samuel for this role. So he comes and we go from the scene immediately prior where Saul is anointed to be king over Israel. And here we come to the public coronation. And in verses 20 through 22, when Samuel announces Saul to all Israel gathered together for their formal covenant, Saul is hiding away in the baggage. This is not the person that you want leading your nation. The very moment Saul is to be chosen to guide and lead and protect Israel, he's hiding. Not a great start for the man who's supposed to fight your battles for you. But even more than his hiding, what's fascinating is the very praise Saul receives in this passage turns out to be a judgment against him. So what happens when they finally go and and find Saul and they come and they bring him, they stand him in the midst of the company, all of the witnesses, all of the people gathered before there, they see that he is a head taller than everybody else. And Samuel exclaims in verse 24, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And certainly, if we were there present at that moment, we'd think, yeah, this guy's going to be great, right? He's going to be awesome. He's a head taller than everybody else. That is exactly who I want fighting for me. Send him out to battle. He's way bigger than I am. But later, in this book, we learn that this, too, is actually a judgment against Saul. You see, Israel has demanded for themselves a king like the nations. And that's exactly what God grants them. God gives them Saul, who stands head and shoulders above everyone else. But in chapter 16, after we've read of Saul's multiple failures, the Lord says this to Samuel. He's saying it about Saul. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So in this way, even the praise that Saul receives in this moment is a judgment against him. God is giving the people of Israel the king they have asked for. In fact, that's what his very name means. The name Shaul in Hebrew means asked for. Saul is the king that people asked for. And sadly, this passage is showing us that Israel, an unfaithful people, have asked for an unfaithful king. And as God is often wont to do, he gives them over to the desires of their heart for a time. And as we reflect on the implications of what this means for you and me, again, it can be helpful to remember that most often and not when we're going through the Old Testament and we, we read about the story of the children uh, of God, we find ourselves in the place of Israel. And so here it can be helpful to ask ourselves, what are the ways that we are seeking out unfaithful kings? In general, this is every time we turn away from God and place our trust in any other lesser savior. When we look for any security or hope or comfort or validation or any other thing that we place on the highest throne of our hearts or our minds, we are looking for an unfaithful king. And so I ask you this morning, 
What are the ways that you are looking for an unfaithful king? It could be your career or your job where you think you'll finally find the security or the prestige that you want. It could be your family. A good thing. But if you place your validation and the longings of your hearts for them, it will be an unfaithful king. It could be your finances where you live or your relationships or any area of your life that you would set at the center of your heart's desire, thinking that it would ultimately give you peace. In any of these ways, if any of these things take the place of the one true God in heaven, then they are false saviors and unfaithful kings. And when we acknowledge that we, just like Israel, are an unfaithful people, and we seek out unfaithful kings, we are left asking the most important question of this passage is, what do we do next? How then can we be saved? And the answer to that question is our third and final point for this morning. Because this passage and the entire book of 1 Samuel points us forward to the one true faithful king who is to come. Consider again the context of our passage, the very covenant that God is making with his people. Here we are at the coronation of Israel's first king. God has gathered all of Israel together to make a covenant with them. And in this covenant, God is the one who chooses the person to lead them as king. And the first lesson we learn about that leader is that he is and he will be unfaithful. So how do we reconcile these two things together? How do we reconcile that the God of the universe, the God who made all things, the God who is promising, making binding promises to his people, gives them a king that he knows will fail. He knew what he was doing. We can't say that this is a mistake. He knew Saul was going to be unfaithful, so nothing is a surprise to God here. And in case you're tempted to doubt this is part of his plan, there's another clue that I alluded to earlier. Remember when I mentioned that this all takes place at Mitzpah, well, Mitzpah was the place where Israel covenanted together to fight against the tribe of Benjamin. And this, too, is a judgment against Saul because Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. So God is crowning a Benjaminite at the very place of his tribe's most shameful failure. It's as if God is telling us, I know, children, I know your limitations. I know your unfaithfulness. And just in case you are tempted to think that it is your own faithfulness that is going to save you, I'm going to choose the most shameful among you because I am ultimately the one who has to provide your faithfulness. Friends, our God knows that every earthly leader or savior or potential king that we look to and trust in will fail us. And in his mercy and compassionate knowledge, as he has always done in his covenants from the very beginning, his covenant promises point us forward to a coming Savior. And that coming Savior is Jesus Christ. God has planned for our unfaithfulness. He knew he was going to have to provide for us. He knew all of the kings of Israel were going to fail. Not just Saul. Not just David, who will be called a man after his own heart. Every single king of Israel was going to fail. And this is the wonder of the season of Advent. 
That is only in the coming of our King Jesus that our faithful King has arrived. Jesus is lauded as King by the angels in heaven at his birth. The wise men come to celebrate Jesus, bestowing kingly gifts and giving him kingly honor. Jesus is the one of whom Isaiah foretold. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Jesus is the one whom God raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus is the one who rides into Jerusalem in triumph on a donkey as a king who has established peace throughout his kingdom. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is anointed and served and worshipped as the king of his people throughout his life. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who conquers the world. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Jesus Christ is the faithful king who provides the faithfulness that we lack. In our own flesh, you and I are unfaithful people. Jesus is the faithful one. In our own flesh, we seek out unfaithful kings. And yet God is merciful. And from the very beginning, he has planned to provide the faithful king that we needed. So that we might be saved by the faithfulness of our one true king, Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn of the dead. The ruler of the kings of earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ has come, and he is faithful. Place your trust in him. Repent of your unfaithfulness and turn to him, and he will show you grace, and he will provide all the faithfulness that you lack. Would you trust in him and pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you that you are a covenant promise-making God. And we confess that we, like Israel, are an unfaithful people, and we would look for unfaithful kings to save us. And so we give you praise and thanks that in your kindness and your mercy, you have shown us your faithfulness. You have given us our true King Jesus. That if we should confess that he is Lord and believe that you have raised him from the dead, we too shall be saved. Would this good news rule and reign in our hearts and would it build up your church here in Bellingham and across the world we ask this morning. Amen.
Let's rise, please, and confess to our king the things that we believe to be true about him. Uh, you get to confess first that he is your Lord. You confess your sins. You, you speak these words back to him as part of your confession of belief. So let's, let's confess together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead.